Chosen and Dearly Loved, title this message for you. Last week we began a new series on the topic of the church, of which we are a part. Who are we really as the church was our question. Ultimately, more important than that question is the question, who does God say the church is? What has he revealed in his word about the true nature of this group called the church? I showed you several pictures last week of buildings of different groups. Some were harder to look at than others. But we asked, are these churches? What is a church? So as a brief review, here is how we begin answering this question. The first slide for you. The church is not a physical building. The church is the people of God who form a spiritual building built on the sure foundation of Jesus, the cornerstone of the church. In the simplest terms, that's what the church is. That's where we're starting, at least. The church is much more than that, but it is never less than that. We drew this conclusion from 1 Peter 2, 4 through 6, which says, as you come to him, the living stone... Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, here it is, are being built into a spiritual house. That is the church. A spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So the church is this body that are built upon this foundational stone that is perfection. Jesus is perfection. And he's the only foundation upon which his body, his bride, his people can be built up in the most holy faith. We elaborated just a bit on that first point with this next one. The true church is made up of all who have been brought to new spiritual life By the Spirit of God, having been reconciled to God. We were his enemies, now we're his friends, his loved ones, his family. We've been reconciled by trusting in the atoning death and overcoming resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is by grace, through faith, that we have been saved and become the church. We are the church. This point is meant to illustrate the great importance of doctrinal precision in our understanding of who the church is. We need criteria by which to gauge whether a professing body is in fact or is not the true church of the living God. With the seemingly endless number of religious groups in the world now and all the various splinter groups off of them and the great variety of worship facilities that we have and worship styles and denominations and non-denominations We have to know what measure there is by which it can be determined whether we are or are not dealing with a true biblical church. I want to give you just a brief contemporary example of what I'm getting at in these various ideas here. There's a a Christian band that I absolutely love. Um, In recent years, they've become one of my very favorites. Many of their songs have moved me very deeply, I'd say virtually All, with just few exception of their songs, are incredibly theologically rich. Um, However, they released an album very recently, and one of the songs on that album was called More Church Than Church. And I want to show you the words, the first part of this, this song, these lyrics, and go over them with you. Many of these lyrics are are quite well written. And it's it goes like this: I wish Sunday morning 
could feel more like Tuesday nights. Twelve steps down to a basement under harsh fluorescent lights. That's a very clever line, twelve steps down to a basement. There's a lot hidden in those words there. All ages, all races, all walks of life at 6 p.m., stumbling in to keep ourselves from stumbling again. Again, that's a great line. Strangers spilling secrets in a circle without walls, trying to reach for Jesus instead of drugs and alcohol. It's a great line. All sitting in gray folding chairs, sipping coffee in a white styrofoam cup. Ain't nobody throwing stones up in here. Can't judge because we know we all messed up. Ain't no steeple, just broken people. And here's another very clever play on words. Wearing those shame tags on our shirts. Where the truth is, truth heals more than truth hurts. Those are great lyrics. That's very thoughtful. And if they just would have stopped there, that would have been wonderful. But then he goes to make this summarizing statement. That's more church than church. I actually love a lot of what is being said here, especially knowing the testimony of this guy as the lead singer, how God brought him out of great shame and addiction and uh, drug abuse and gave him a voice to speak now to thousands, probably millions, about the hope of the gospel. Um, It's awesome to see when those who have been enslaved to drugs or alcohol taste freedom and begin to value accountability and take that walk of shame into a circle of like-minded addicts who are desperate for hope and change. And really, we're all addicts in some way. We might not be in a 12-step program, but we all have been addicted to our sin and many, in, in many ways still are. So it's not like we're segregating people, the, those who really need Jesus and those who don't. We're all in this category, whether it's visible or not, spiritual or literal. We've all worn a name tag that says shame and, and condemned. That's been, our, that's been our identity. And so I love a song that gives voice to how the Holy Spirit radically, dramatically, in a single moment can change the trajectory of our lives, can change our story, can give us new names, can give us new hope. And this song speaks to that. Another thing I love about this song is that it rightly praises the beauty of the non-self-righteous attitudes of grace-filled believers who've been down to the very depths and therefore have much grace on those who are going through it. Jesus alluded to this when he said, those who've been forgiven much love much. Now, the fact is, everyone who's been forgiven has been forgiven much. It's just that some people don't realize it yet. Those who realize it, they have incredible grace and love for those who are slogging through the swamps of addiction and of the flesh. So many of the lines in this song are are written so well and are so beautiful and, and speak to these gospel truths and this testimony that God gives to those who've opened their heart and whose heart they've op- have been opened by his spirit. One thing that's great is when we find Christian support groups when we're going through difficult times. One of the issues with this song, though, is the very first line when he says, I wish Sunday morning could feel more like Tuesday night. That implies that what church is really about, what we're after, is a certain feeling. A feeling that I'm more likely to get having coffee with really messy people like myself than walking into a building on a Sunday morning. We get a feeling when we're in a, in a room spilling our story to people who have the same story and we're able to fellowship and get encouragement. We get a certain feeling and it's a good one. Like, hey, we've got our bros, we've got our sisters. They understand my addiction and my shame and we have camaraderie. And we think that really colors in and gives meaning and shape to what it means for me to be a part of the body that God has 
building for himself. The problem is that's simply not how God defines the church. And sadly, instead of finding a clever or creative way at the end of that chorus to say, this could very well be a wonderful branch off the church or an outreach of the local church, a ministry of the local church to those slugging through the depths. Instead of finding a way to say that, they they look at that model of those people in that circle going through that meeting and they say, that is the church more than this is the church. Us sharing our struggles and, and having heart to hearts and talking about our shame, that is the pure version of what the church is, not a gathering on a Sunday morning so much. Notice in this song, it's a very small demographic of people. Those who at this moment in their lives are struggling with substance abuse and have joined a recovery group. And this small demographic are getting together to be honest about these struggles, to encourage one another and hold one another accountable. And as it says, trying to reach for Jesus. But friends, the church, according to God, more specifically, more accurately, even though that's a wonderful part of the ministry, the church is a gathered body of believers who are there simply to worship God and to affirm the truths that he has passed down to them by which he saves them. That's why the church historically has always been, the true church has always been what's called a confessional people. And while that might not look exactly the same for us, we are in that tradition that it's by our understanding of our core beliefs that we are who we are. It's the affirmation and the clear presentation of the truths that save us that largely determines that we are his body and that we are a church. Confessions date back to the earliest centuries of history where there would be these false teachers that would come up in the church and try to pull people astray after themselves and say things like Jesus wasn't truly God. And so the church, the true church, began to come together and fight that and say, no, here's what God has said, here's what he's revealed. And so we confess, we affirm, this is what he said, this is what's true, this is who we are. We believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in his only son, sent to save us from our sins, born of a virgin, born at the right time, born under law. He was fully God, he was fully man. We believe in his atoning death. We believe in his powerful resurrection. We believe in the Holy Spirit who has been sent to bring these truths to life and those who he's redeeming. We believe he will come again to to rescue his church. These are the timeless ancient confessions of the true people of God. It was those truths that made them who they were and that make us who we are. That's what defines a church according to God. We confess a very particular set of truths about God and all that he's revealed about himself, his nature, his being, that he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, about the nature of salvation and how it is accomplished through Christ. It's as we come to God in repentance and faith, trusting in what he's said, trusting in these truths, repenting and believing, it's only then that we know for sure that there is, in fact, a cornerstone who has been set upon which a building will be constructed And that building is the church, and that cornerstone is Jesus. And the foundation is right doctrine. Then the spiritual building can be built up. And after that's happened, yeah, do it. Go out. Go into the world. Get together. Help one another through addiction. Help one another through struggle. Pray for and encourage one another. Reach out to the world in every way you can to show them the love of a God who would come to earth to die and to save. But do those things as 
facets of this building that has been put up. Not in a way that says that is the building. There's an issue here, and I hope it doesn't seem like we're splitting hairs, but there's an issue here when we, we attempt to reduce, to make small, the glorious eternal work of God calling to himself a bride and dying for her to make her beautiful and pure and overcoming death for her that she could live. It's not good to reduce that to a basement room where people drink coffee and talk about the mess of their lives and to say that that is a more pure version of what it means to be the bride than people who would gather in a place like this on a Sunday morning. That does a disservice to the glorious doctrine of the church. Part of the outreach of the church might very and well involve ministry to those in recovery, but to say that such meetings are more church than what biblically, historically is the church, that's very misleading and betrays a lack of understanding on the Bible's clear teaching. And I'm not trying to just pick on a band who I actually love. I just use this as a case study of modern Christianity's modern or this, this modern Christianity's unfortunate careless thinking on a topic that's actually very close to the heart of God because he actually cares a great deal about his bride, just like most people should care about their spouse. This really matters, which is why it's so important to start with this idea that the true church is the gathered community of God's people at all places for all time. Whether in the first century or the 10th or today or on into the future, as long as Jesus tarries, it's those who are gathered by his spirit in his name, this one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one confession. The church's top priorities then are to believe and to teach the truth. There are other things that are very important to the ministry that need to come out eventually, but our top priorities are to believe and to teach the truth. Why? As Paul said, because that's what we received and that's what we pass on. That is our job. That's our role as his body, as his bride. Aren't these the very words Paul used? What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. What? He goes through the great confession of timeless truths of what Jesus has done. The second greatest commandment, of course, is one that has to do with our doing. And it proves that we've understood the truth part, the being part, the nature part. It's in our love and our outreach as we love one another, as we love ourselves, and as God has loved us, that's what proves the sincerity of our confession. But it's the confession that has to be first and is most important. Consider all these voices from the past that have given the clarion call to the truth, that have been leaders in the church. Consider them from every age, every generation who have passed on this torch that we could know the truth and be set free by the truth. Just imagine what if what if the people in Corinth in the first century had decided just to go into the streets and to start fighting for whatever social cause was important in Corinth in that day? Or as the gospel moved, in, moved north into Europe or east into Asia, all these different countries as it moved into France and Germany and all these places, what if in those ages of church history, these leading voices stopped talking and said, you know what, the church really is all about doing. Let's go into the streets, let's Let's minister to the poor. Let's take part in these social initiatives of our day. And that's what it means to preach the gospel and to be the church. What if they'd done that and they'd stopped speaking, stopped preaching? 
Friends, we wouldn't have a gospel passed on any longer. You sometimes, it sounds like something's really, thankfully it's not flashing over there. I was trying to make sure that wasn't my cue to wrap this sermon up. I'm thankful that through the centuries, because of the faithfulness of God's people to speak, to speak up and to speak out, many of them at the cost of their own life, what would we have done if they didn't speak, if they didn't use their words to say what the truth is? There were many times in history that it was illegal to do so. No, you don't speak about the name of Christ. You don't speak about the gospel. You say that Caesar is God and everyone will be getting along just fine. They say, no, we can't do that. Well, you're going to do it. No, we won't. We can't. Okay, then you're going to die. Okay, take my life. How many thousands upon thousands upon thousands were beheaded, set on fire, torn to pieces by the beasts because they would not stop speaking the truth of the gospel? What if they hadn't stood up and courageously done that? What if they decided to redefine the church like many in our cultural moment right now are doing, trying to reduce it merely to a social club that's all about social do-gooding? What if that's what they'd done in ages past? You've heard this saying, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. That's clever, and I kind of get the point of what they're trying to say, but it's actually a really horrible saying. What did we say last week from Romans? How can people know and believe and be set free if someone doesn't preach the truth to them? That's how the gospel goes forth. That's how people hear and how they're set free by their hearing, by the truth. The fire of the gospel has burned brightly throughout history because men and women bravely raised their voices and spoke the truth, often when it was most unpopular to do so. Many of them were ripped from their families for the rest of their earthly existence and went straight to the Lord and, now, and then awaited reunion with their family. And now here we are. And this truth has been faithfully passed on generation after generation, and now it's in our hands. What a frightful thing. What a dreadfully serious responsibility. God has passed this down from one generation to the next, and now it is in our hands. What are we going to do with that? How will we pass it on? How will we truly be the church? You know, one of the hardest things to do in order to be the church is to continually preach the gospel to ourselves and to each other because we're sinners. And we'd much rather just go out and volunteer for stuff and feel good about ourselves than have to daily die to ourselves by the hearing of the gospel applied daily to my life. It's far easier to to only get involved in service projects. These are like built-in ways to feel better in life. Man, I love the shoebox day. And and there's this built-in thing about it that it's just like a chemical release in your brain. Like, hey, I'm doing something that matters that's going to help someone that might open the door to salvation to a child. There's all these horrible things people are doing across the world, destroying each other. And then there's those who are trying to serve and to help. And that's awesome. That's wonderful. But even a ministry like that can become an idol so very quickly when it displaces the gospel in our hearts and becomes the source by which we prop ourselves up thinking we have spiritual life and we are the church. It's easier just to do good and serve the poor than to continually confess the truth about ourselves, about our God, and what he's done to save and to bring us to himself forever. The truth of the gospel will offend us. It will hurt us at times, but it's a, it's a hurt that leads to life. 
But if we just busy our hands all the time, thinking that in our doing that we are automatically satisfying any requirements God has for us to be his body, we're deceiving ourselves. We need this constant reminder, we're hopeless sinners, and without his grace, what would be our end? What would be the outcome of our life? Utterly hopeless without him. Which means a paradigm shift needs to happen in the true church, where where they don't stop doing good deeds, or having goodwill toward the world, or serving their communities. They don't stop doing those things. But the reasons they do those things radically change. It's no longer to feel good about myself and like I made a dent in this nasty world in the time that I had and engaged in some good stuff. No, we begin to serve and to love the world around us and to die to ourselves because we are desperate to show a kind of kindness that God showed to us that someone else needs in their life, an undeserved kindness, a radical love. God tells us, go and be like me. Go and do what I've done for you. Love others in the way I've loved you. Have compassion when you see people drowning in their sin and their suffering. Do them good. Show them kindness. Love them well, even when they spit on you, even when they're ungrateful to you. Pray for them. Love them. Serve them. This is how I have loved you in coming to this earth. And this, then, is how I'm calling you to love others. That's the outworking of being the church. That's not the defining quality of being the church. Here's a main point then for today. If you're doing defines your being, repentance is needed. I hope this isn't confusing at this point. I hope it doesn't seem like splitting hairs. It's so important that we get this right. It's because of what God says about who we are as his bride that frees us up to do what he's calling us to do for the right reasons, for the right motives. We can't get it wrong like many in our culture are doing where we just go out all the time and say, just go out and be the church. That's what God needs And then once you're doing all the good, then you'll get a sense of who you are and you'll find your identity in that. No, I find my identity in the fact that there's a God who loved me in spite of my sin and died for me and saved me and is going to let me live with him forever in beautiful eternal life. That will change then how I live. If your doing defines your being, repentance is needed. On the other side of that then is this point. However, if you desire to love others, Because of how God first so loved you, it's a sign that you are a true member of the body of Christ, the church. It might seem like a subtle or maybe insignificant difference, but it's an important difference there. If your heart has been changed because of what's already happened to you, and you you now have this desire to love others because of how God first so loved you, it's a sign that you are a true member of the body of Christ, the church. And friends, I would... Submit to you today, there is nothing better you could be a part of in your time on this earth than a true body of believers, which is God has scattered everywhere across this whole world. There's nothing better you could be a part of. The eternal company of all who ever have or ever will believe in the Lamb of God, Jesus the Messiah. Now, lest you misunderstand what I'm saying today, let me affirm at this point, we do care about loving our neighbors here. I hope you know that. That's important. We do care about showing goodwill to the world. We do care about seeking to show others the heart of the Father through kindness. It's why we partner with ministries like Samaritan's Purse and Convoy of Hope and many others. That's why we do that. But friends, if the apex, if the highlight of your Christian experience 
is to pack a shoebox or to give a donation. If that's the height of your worship and your relationship with God, the simple truth is this morning, you simply need a greater awe, A-W-E. You need a much greater awe in your life. You've been playing in the sandbox and God is calling you to the ocean. You need a greater inspiration. If you've never had this before, let God give you an awe of himself this morning that is unparalleled. He will give it to you through his spirit and through his word if that's what you desire. If you are a true member of the body of Christ, I want to encourage you with the last moments of this sermon with some of the the beautiful truths that God says are true of you. If you are a member of his body, if you are a part of the church, friends, you are chosen by him. And he made that choice before this world even existed. Before anyone was ever born that would be your great, great, great times a million grandparent. Okay, that's an exaggeration. Time a thousand. He chose to show his affection to those that would become his bride. You are chosen by him and you are dearly loved by him. And that is what is to color in and give meaning to your identity as a part of the body, the bride. Think of this. The God of the universe, the God who literally spoke worlds into existence. Imagine being able to see that, to, to, to witness that outside of time and space, as well as time is beginning, really. The God who, when he created time and space, then he filled the oceans up. He, sh- he shaped the mountain peaks. He covered the earth. He scattered the stars. And it even says he knows each and every one by name. That's impressive because there are billions and billions of them and he knows every single one by name. And if if all those things weren't amazing enough, it all pales in comparison to this great truth that surpasses even those that I've just mentioned and that is he chose you in him. He knew your name and that was more important to him than any name of any star. And you are dearly loved by him. It's a real struggle, isn't it, growing up when you desperately desire the love or the affection of someone that, won't, that doesn't give it to you. This can be especially difficult when we're, if you're young and in school and you happen to be a, um, a little heartthrob and a little romantic and, and you just have this huge crush on this person. You're, you're just confident God wants you to marry. You might be in third grade, but you're sure. And yet, for the life of them, they don't, they don't give you the time of day. There are a lot of people that have that experience, and sometimes it's more traumatic because it's later in life. It's in the teenage years or young adult years, and you're just confident this person is the one, and you're desperate for their affection and for their love, and, and for whatever reason, you might get affection and love from someone who you just really aren't that interested in receiving it from, and you're like, God, you got the wires crossed. Like, you put that in the wrong person. You gave the wrong potion to the, to the wrong drink. What a difficult thing to spend all that time and emotion desperately wishing that we would be dearly loved by someone who simply doesn't dearly love us. And if we're not careful, that can actually ruin a life. It can steal joy. It can render a person insecure for the rest of their life and ashamed of who they are. All the while, there is a God calling to his bride. And this is especially amazing because it's a bride who has made herself ghastly by her sin, repulsive in her sin, And yet there is this God of pure, holy affection who is speaking tenderly 
to this bride and singing his affection over her and is leading her out of the filth that she is living in, even in the depth of her heart, to a place where she can be washed clean and covered by his love. And all her shame can be hidden and removed instead of exposed forever. This is what makes the church the church. This is what makes the bride the bride. It's the affection of the bridegroom that he has put on his chosen one. I want to take just a brief tour with you of a few snippets of verses in Hosea 2 that illustrate this. God likens his people to this adulterous bride in such filth because of her many, many adulteries with lesser lovers. Forsaking the purity that God would have her enjoy. And it says this in Hosea 2.2, let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. And the, the suggestion there is that this bride, though she is deeply loved and cherished, that's, that's not what she wants. That's not what she needs. Instead, she feels the need to shame herself by exposing much of her body so that it get, gets the attention of a world who just has lust for her, not love. And she wants that to be her identity. She wants to be seen in, in parts of her body that God would say you should cover. That, that's a symbol of things that were meant to be sacred and shared between two who are faithful and devoted to one another. And he says in verse 5, she has been unfaithful. And in verse 7, she will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Some people might get very angry with God at this, but he is sovereign and he will not let you find ultimate satisfaction and love in a source outside of himself. Now there's some pretty wonderful blessings God gives in human relationship that sometimes go a long way in giving you joy and in helping you understand the love of God that he has for his bride, but they will never truly satisfy in the way that only he can satisfy. He's the one that created the human heart and soul. He's not going to let her find her ultimate joy in lesser love. Verse 10, this seems to contradict what I said earlier about him covering shame instead of exposing it, but hang with me. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will take her out of my hands. Now, typically the way of the world would be, okay, there's unfaithfulness, there's adultery. I, I want the whole world to see that and appreciate who this person really is and let them be forever known in their shame. No, God exposes it temporarily for a very holy reason. It's to let it be seen among the debased and in her own eyes, the truth of things. And it's for the purpose of bringing her to something better. And then we find out she's gotten some uh, perks for giving herself away to the world. Hosea 2.12, God says, I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were pay from her lovers. Think of, of how our world is structured right now. This is how it works. You pay, you, you give either money or you give drugs or you give a car or you give a room to someone who then you own their body and you get to use it for employ however you want. And you get to have that property now in your possession. And so this sort of a person would say, yes, they're the one who, in, in this culture, it was the vines the fig trees, a source of surviving, of eating, of sleeping for another day. My lovers 
This is how they show their love to me. They, they throw me a bone. They give me some jewelry or some nice clothes or some cash or some more drugs. And I'll continue to do what I'm told and to give myself in the world. This sounds awful at this point. Dreadful, doesn't it? And then look what our God does. Verse 14. But then I will win her back once again. One translation says, I will allure her. I will lead her into the desert. That is, get her out of the place where she can't hear, she can't think. All the voices of the world, all the affections of the world that are lesser. He gets her out of there. He says, I will remove her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. And then despite our great unfaithfulness to him, he says this to us, his bride, verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. Betrothal was such a beautiful custom in the Jewish culture. You were considered completely married and in covenant with each other with the minor exception of consummating the marriage. In every other way, you were considered fully wed and covenanted. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. These moving statements from a husband to his unfaithful bride, they are statements from God to his people, the church. It, it was true in Israel's day, it is true for us today. These are statements from our God to us in all of our spiritual unfaithfulness that we're guilty of. We are yet his bride and his people because he has determined, he has chosen to show and to set his affection upon us. Is, is this not the most beautiful and comforting good news you've ever heard in your life. Hosea 2.23, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those, in case you had any, any question about if God is being figurative here in all this imagery of bride and groom, he brings it to its conclusion. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Friends, are you beginning to see how sad then it is and unfortunate when we take something as beautiful as the doctrine of the church and we reduce it to social programs by which we make ourselves feel good about ourselves? Look what God has done to call you the church. Look at what the central defining feature is of it. It's not what we do. All those things we do, yes, those are great because we want other people to, to be brought into this marriage, into this church, into this family. We want them to see and experience that love, but the primary thing that makes it what it is is that you are in this relationship forever and ever. Can you hear his voice today? He's speaking through his word. If you can hear him, believe him. If you have ears to hear, if this is... Stirring something in you, if you've never been stirred before, if you're not, you're not sure if you've known him, if you don't know what you believe, if you don't know if you've trusted in him, if you hear him speaking, know this, he calls you his own, he's chosen you, and you are dearly loved by him. That can become the central defining feature of your life for the rest of your life and for eternity, and there's nothing better than that. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 says this, he chose us in him 
before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us in him even before the foundation of the world. So a main idea I want to give to you, and we're almost through here, and we'll share communion together. Just a couple last verses and ideas. Here's one. The identity of the true church, then, is not, I fight for social good and feel good about myself. The church's true identity is, I was loved and chosen by God before creation, and I will be forever. That's the identity of the true church. Now, do you want to choose God back to whatever degree we are free to choose him? And there are certainly reasons to to have discussions about the limits and parameters of such freedom. But do you want to choose him back to whatever degree is possible? Yes, we do. I think, I hope we do. As God often said to his people, choose life that you might live. But brothers and sisters, we are the church only because he first chose us. It was his choosing us that gave us all that we have. And do we long to love him with all our hearts and to express our love to him and to sing our love to him through song? So thankful, just so wonderful just to be standing out there today and just to be wrapped up in the the sound of the praises of God's people and to to be able to be blessed by those ministering through music, to be out there with you and just hear that. Do we want to sing and express our love for him? Yes, we do, but friends, we only love him because he first loved us. That's why we're his church. That's what we read here, Ephesians 5.25. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Notice, if you will, that in both these passages in Ephesians that we looked at, which both indicate God's heart toward his church, toward his people, notice that the primary intended end, the outcome of his choosing his people, his bride, and loving them was that they be with him forever without sin. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? That is God's intention in calling and choosing and drawing his church is that they would be with him forever without sin. That's his aim. That's what he is up to with the church. And so how shameful and how sad in our American Christian subcultures that we have so often reduced the church to mere moralism. Hey, leave the building. Go out from there. Just go do good. Do something meaningful in the world in the time that you have. Actually actually do some good for people who need help instead of gathering in a stuffy room and, and... parading on about all your theologies and singing all the same songs and only really getting people around you who are just like you and yada, yada, yada. And the church is reduced to mere moralism, do-goodism, which just is a means of propping ourselves up in our own minds to feel good about ourselves. Now again, please hear my heart. I'm not suggesting we should give up One Day to Feed the World or Operation Christmas Child. I'm not suggesting you stop ringing bells at the entrance to the grocery store at Christmas if that's what you do or serving the homeless. I'm saying, let your heart be radically changed as to why you do those things. Many in our culture, they've begun to loathe the traditional church. They almost hate it. Leave it, abandon it, 
And for those folks, the soup kitchen is their church. That's the identity. The gas voucher program is the church. Social programs are the church. Some who volunteer endless hours in organizations, they actually grow to despise those who gather in buildings like this to sing to the Lord their affection and to learn his word. They think that does no good for anybody. And that completely misses the eternal picture God gives us about why he has called the church out. It's to be with them forever and them without sin. Now, I don't know with all the faces here today, and I'm so grateful you're here. I don't know everyone's heart. I don't know anyone's heart in the way that God does. I don't know why you serve in the ways that you do or with what organizations. I'm not going to tell you you shouldn't. I would say absolutely reach out, love the world, serve, give, show compassion, show kindness, get involved. But friends, we have to do it because we are desperate to see the lost shown the gospel in the way that we were shown it by someone or by the Lord directly himself. You get to a point where you can hardly walk through Walmart without your heart breaking at some point because you catch someone's eyes and staring back at you is this empty, vacant look coming from an empty, vacant soul, and there's something moved in you that says, God, I want them to know you and to live with you forever. Would you show them your kindness? And are you calling me in some way to show kindness, to show the truth of the gospel? You begin to pray that God would open these eyes and forgive sins and save just like he did for you. And so a, a final point here for you. The true church is that company, that group of people who are chosen by God and dearly loved by him and who cannot help but begin loving others the way they have been loved. That's who the church is. It's our being that defines what we do and why we do it, not the other way around. Well, it's our first Communion Sunday in this new place, and I'm so excited about that and thankful to be able to share that with you. We traditionally do that in the middle of the service, but I thought this would go well today at the end. Communion is God's gift to us, and when I say us, I mean his church, his people. It's his gift. It's his way of saying to us, these things I've spoken, I've spoken to you, a special people I've called to myself to be with me forever without sin. These truths are for you. These things are for you because of my love for you. The very first communion 2,000 years ago, it was a sacred last meal shared by the living God, who at that moment was wrapped up in human flesh, shared by him with those whom he had chosen and dearly loved. And, it, and through this first communion, God used it to comfort those, those 12, even though one would not be among them. It was meant as a gift that would comfort them. He comforted them with this precious thought that this would not be the last time that they shared a meal together. It's going to be the last time for a while, was essentially the point. But his words of comfort and promise was this, this will not be the last time that we feast together, that we fellowship together over a meal. Friends, imagine where that's pointing because Jesus said it's going it's to be a while, but we will share this again, even though the years might stretch into centuries, which stretch into millennia. But friends, remember this, there will be a day that there will be a great eternal banqueting hall, a table set for the church, the final number that will be brought in. And Jesus will be able to look around this table once again 
And in, in whatever way he does that for everyone, I don't know. But to be able to look into the eyes of untold multitudes of his loved ones and say, didn't I tell you? If it were not true, wouldn't I have told you? But it is true. See, taste, know it is true. And finally, not just with my chosen few, but with all who are mine, I share this meal. Eat, drink, be nourished, live in me. I don't know exactly if he'll say that or not. I'm speculating, of course, but can you imagine? You just let your imagination run for just a moment of what that will look like because he clearly indicated it would be shared together again, this meal. And so until then, he's given us this gift where we have small tokens that are just mere symbols of a much greater meal that's coming, of eternal fellowship. These small tokens of just a little cup and a little wafer, they point to what one day will be the real feast and friends, it's awesome, isn't it, that he's present with us now, spiritually, in the depth of our hearts? That's, that's wonderful. But how much more amazing, even so, will it be to actually see him like we're looking at each other? When we look in each other's eyes, for those to be the eyes of the Messiah looking back at you. For his hands to actually be put on your, your shoulders or in your hands or whatever the case may be. To hear him speak your name. To share a meal with you. Think about that moment and ask this, will the meaningfulness of your life in that moment in, in forever, will it be the various service projects you involved yourself in while far away down on this place called the broken planet Earth? Is that what will really color in and give meaning to your eternal life? No, it's this relationship. It's that you are his forever. This morning, if you're not sure yet whether you are his, if you've come into this place and you don't know, and maybe that's because you're not even sure you think he's real or that this is all made up fairy tale, or maybe you do think he's real, but there's been a wall that's kept you from fully trusting him or repenting or believing. Maybe you think you're, you're too lost. Maybe you think you're too sinful or hypocritical. For whatever reason, you don't know whether you're really his or not. In the most loving, gentle way, I would say, friend, it's, it's probably wisest in that case just to let this tray and this cup and bread just, just pass by you. I don't think anyone here is going to judge you. They better not. They shouldn't. It would be wise just to, just to wait on that. But also, before you make that decision, why not first just take a moment here, now, and just be honest with yourself and with the God who made you. In the depth of your heart, ask him to speak the truth to your soul and to change your life. Why not? Why, wouldn't, why couldn't this be the most holy of moments for you where you believe in and trust in him? He will change your life. He will forgive you if you ask. He will cleanse you. He already knows every issue, every sin, not just the ones past, but the ones yet ahead. Friend, you are not too sinful for him to forgive. I'm sorry, but none of us are that special. His sacrifice on the cross was, was too great. You can be forgiven and have life. He calls you to himself. Hear the message and believe and be saved. If God is using this moment for you to do that, why not celebrate by receiving communion for the first time knowing, God, I, I give my whole self to you. I have nothing. Save me by your grace. Forgive me. There's no reason why you shouldn't celebrate your first act as a new child of God by sharing communion with your brothers and your sisters who you will be with forever the true church. Don't be afraid in that case. Don't doubt. Don't be ashamed. 
He died to prove these things to us. So believe and live.